Let me just give you a little bit of background, if you weren't with us this morning, where we're up to in this book. Last week, we just we did that. We just laid a foundation for what this letter, uh, Philippians, is all about. It's written by the Apostle Paul about 60 AD. So about 30 years after Jesus has resurrected, he's died on the cross, he's resurrected, he's ascended to be with the Father. And the Apostle Paul has taken the good news of who Jesus is from Asia into Europe. And he plants this church in Greece, in a city called Philippi, the first church in Europe. And this letter that he writes 10 years later is written from prison. And this is a bit of a recurring theme for for the Apostle Paul, not because he was a, a bad man, but because the message that he was preaching it just didn't land well with the people that he was sharing it with. They opposed his message. He was saying, Jesus is Lord, within an empire that said, Caesar is Lord. And it often landed himself in jail. So 10 years after planting this church, he writes back to the church in Philippi, probably while he's in chains in a city called Ephesus in Turkey. And he's writing to them primarily to encourage them to grow. But specifically, he wants them to grow looking towards Jesus. He wants them to use Jesus as, as the model, as the, the, the shadow in which they grow towards. And if you think of maybe, just think of, of, of my son. Like Micah spends a lot of time with me and as he grows, he's, he's going to look more and more like me. You look at him now and he does look quite like me and, and as the years go on he will continue to look more and more like me why because he he looks at me and he copies what i do it's right isn't it some good things some bad things he copies what i do and he grows into my character because he is looking at me he is focused on me and in the same way the apostle paul writes this church in philippi and says look to jesus look to jesus and we did a little quiz last week didn't we and it went horribly wrong where i asked the kids to have a look through the letter to Philippians and find how many times it says Jesus. And the answer, Andy, was? Eight. No, it wasn't eight. It was eight in the first chapter. You, you got the right answer. It was 30-something, wasn't it? It was like 39 times in these four chapters. Guys, come on. 39 times in the, these four chapters, it talks about Jesus. Like Paul is adamant, look to Jesus. Look towards Jesus. If you want to copy anyone, and listen, at this time in the first century in Roman culture, there were lots of people you could copy. Paul says, no, follow Jesus. Copy him. Imitate him. And that is the great encouragement to us as a church. Paul is going to encourage us through this letter to grow. To grow into the likeness of Jesus. And I don't know whether you ever, ever kind of read the Bible in this way. One of the wrong ways to read the Bible is to read it as an individual. This book was written to a people. All the way through, right away from Genesis to Revelation, it's written to a people. It's a corporate book. And so Paul is saying, yes, maybe think individually, but, but more than that, corporately, as the church grow into Christ, look like him. And as we saw last week, if we want to grow we really need to put our roots in, into good soil. And the soil that Paul encourages us to plant into is Jesus. If we want to grow into him, we need to, to really ground ourselves in him and we work out who he is and we understand who he is. Where? In his word. So let me read this passage to us. Folks, I'd love for us just to stand while I read this to us. And the reason it's good for us to stand is, is we love God's word. We want to honor God as he speaks to us. As I said, as I prayed then, these aren't just words. We believe God will speak 
to us and through his word as I read. So this is uh, the uh, letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. The Apostle Paul says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all descent, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thanks, folks. Take a seat. We're going to work backwards this morning. Usually we kind of start in the first verse and we work our way through and try and understand what God is saying to us, but I want us to start at the end because the goal of where Paul wants the church in Philippi to get to and the goal for us this morning is found in the last few verses that we just read there let me read to you again in verse 9 Paul has this prayer and he says this it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that's the goal that's what he wants for the church in Philippi and that's where I believe God would want for us this morning that we as Liberty Church, as God's people, would grow in our love, would abound in our love. We came across that word a few weeks ago, didn't we, in another passage. And we said this word abound means, means to overflow. It's almost like a surplus. And that's what Paul wants for the church. He says, I, I see your love, but I want you to grow in it more and more and to abound in it and to increase in it and to overflow in love. That's the goal of this passage for us this morning. To grow in love and specifically to grow in love for one another. Yes, love God, like that is primary. But Paul specifically is calling the church here to abound in love towards one another. And listen, it isn't like this church aren't loving. Like we're going to see in a few moments, they are very very loving like they are possibly the most loving church that you could come across so it's not like Paul's saying guys you aren't like there's no love you need to start loving no he's saying there is a lot of love grow from that love more and it isn't like for us this morning Liberty Church is a loveless church folks you and you in there are some of the most loving people that I know and God would say through his word this morning to us love more grow in that love love more look at the love that is being shown amongst each other be thankful for that and grow in that love all the more see the whole of the christian life is a life of growth and change some of us don't like change we're going to experience a lot of it this year we experienced so much of it last year didn't we like, look at us, like, how much have we changed from who we were as humanity last year? And it feels uncomfortable sometimes. Like, we resist change sometimes, but actually, we all change. We do. And the Christian life is no different. It is a life of change. If you think about, about who you are, if you're a Christian here this morning, think about the change that has happened in your life. At the moment that you are saved, God saves you when you are at your worst, covered in sin. 
like completely covered in sin. From your heart to your head to your hands, everything you do is, is marred by sin. And at the moment of salvation, you are changed in an instant. You are made right before God. It's what theologians would call a forensic work, a work that has been done and and cannot be undone. You are made right before God. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, right now in the presence of God, you are presented to him through his son, Jesus Christ, as holy, as righteous, as pure and blameless. You have been made right. You have been changed and transformed in an instant. You've been saved from the penalty of death. You've been saved from the the right judgment towards your sin. And Jesus has taken that for you. You've been changed. You've been given the righteousness of God. But Jesus didn't just die to make us like him. Because that is who we are. Righteous, pure, blameless, holy. He didn't just die to, to make us like him in our standing. He died to make us like him in our person. In the way that we live here and now. It isn't like Jesus just dies and resurrects and says, okay, okay, just carry on living like you're living. And then when you come at the end into, into heaven, when you come and be with me, then, then you'll be different. No, he says, it starts now. It starts now. We grow into his likeness now. Christian life is a life of, of change. It is a journey of growth. But I want us to see this as well. It is not becoming what we are not. The Christian life is becoming what we already are. We have already been made right. We have already been made blameless. We have already been made holy. And now this journey that we're on is just day by day becoming more of what we already are. And that is the radical nature of Christian ethics. Every other faith system will call us to become what we are not yet. They would say, you're not good. You're not right. So work harder. Do this. Change in that way because you need to become what you aren't. And and the gospel says, no, you already are. Jesus has already made you right. So just become what you are already. That is so freeing for you. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is so liberating. And even that, that initial change, even that initial transformation of being made right, you can't do that. You can't even work that. That comes to you as a free gift from God. It's called grace. And you just need to ask. Jesus says, knock and the door will be answered to you. The Christian life is a life of change. Changing, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more like he is. Righteous, pure and blameless. And that change, it lasts a lifetime. You see how Paul maps out in the verses we've just been through. On verse 5, he says, from the first day. And then he he transitions in in verse 10 to the last day. He's saying there is a change that happens from the first day all the way to the last day when we see Jesus. And that last day, the, the day when every single one of us will stand before Jesus Christ, that should frame our presence. That is a certainty. The Bible says, and this is truth. Every single one of us, whether we are a Christian or not, will stand before Jesus one day. And right the way through this letter, Paul is going to encourage us, look towards that day. Don't wait for it to come. Frame your present now in light of the sure and certain day that is to come when you'll stand before Jesus. And if you are a Christian, Paul says to the church here in Philippi, he says, frame your growth now in light of that day. Grow now. Don't wait for that day to come. Be pure and blameless now in what you do. And the results when you do, 
The result when we grow in our love towards one another, the result of, of growing in righteousness. What is it in verse 11? God is glorified. See, Paul says we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Why is God glorified when we grow into the likeness of Jesus? Because we will look more like Jesus. That's what glory means. Glory is God's character being put on display. And as we grow to be more like Jesus, to look more like him, God is demonstrated to the world more. He is shown to the world more. Fruitfulness, growth in fruitfulness of righteousness and the glory of God that we see there in verse 11. Those two things go hand in hand. Some of you will know this verse from John's gospel. Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see that relationship between fruit and glory again? Paul says it here in verse 11. Jesus says it in John 15. As you grow in fruitfulness, as you become more like him in your character, in your life, God is glorified. And we do that through Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 11 and again in John's gospel. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the vine and you are the branches. If we are going to grow at all into the likeness of Jesus, we need to be in Jesus. We need to be fixed to him, attached to him. And when we do, when we grow, God is glorified. There is attractive growth that happens when we are in Jesus, when we grow in him, when we abide in him. And that's so important as we start this book, folks. I want us to really just nail this down as we start. There is going to be a push from Paul and a push from, the, from people who are going to come and preach to us over the next 10 weeks to grow. Like that is a real goal from this book, to grow. But that is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the glory of God. That we grow, yes, but we grow for the glory of God. That's what we see in these verses here this morning. We glorify God by growing, and specifically growing in our love for each other. How do we get there? How do we grow as a people in our love for one another? Well, I think first off, we need to just think about the environment in which we're growing. The environment which we grow in matters. If you just think of anything that grows, like it needs to be in the right place, right? So in our back garden, we've got an olive tree. Megan, you'll relate to this, actually. We've got an olive tree in Egbeth, in Liverpool. I've just been standing outside. It just started snowing outside. Do you know how big our olive tree is? About that big. And it has these tiny little green olives that maybe last for a few weeks at the end of the summer, and then they die. It hardly grows. Like, it looks a little bit nice just for a few weeks in the air, but it's in the wrong place. It needs to be in Cyprus. It needs to be somewhere where actually olive, green, uh, olive trees grow. The environment where we are is important for how we want to grow. And the environment that that Paul really encourages here and pushes here is the family of God. Specifically, what, what I'd like to call a fellowship of friends. See, when we think of church, and some of us have got different backgrounds in church, different history of church, different perceptions of what church is. When we think of church, and as we journey through this letter, I want us just to push to one side. The thought of church being a building, the thought of church even just being people coming together at at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on a Sunday, like push that to one side. That is not the church. 
What Paul paints for us here is something, something much more profound than that. Something that drills so much deeper. It is a fellowship of friends. Like I used this analogy a few weeks ago, the Lord of the Rings analogy, and I love it because it works so well. Like you think of those hobbits like journeying on along and you look at, at, the, at the band of, 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 of um, strange creatures that journey towards this journey and they all look so different. They're all, you know, you've got kind of good looking, um, um, I don't even know what they are, like, like um, elves. elves. Yeah, there, there you go, elves and then little hobbits and then just all sorts of different people all journeying together. It's a band of friends. It's a fellowship of friends. This is not, folks, a religious meeting. There's so much more than that. The environment in which we want to grow in and specifically grow towards being a people who love one another needs to be within a fellowship of friendship. Let me read just a few verses for us again. Verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So we, we had a little bit of the backstory last week of Paul going to Philippi, of sharing the gospel with a few different people. Lydia, a businesswoman being saved, and then um, and the slave girl being brought out of, of a demon possession and she being saved. And then the Philippian jailer be, being saved. And then Paul getting thrown into jail. Like He had such a, an interesting experience. Then he leaves and carries on his missionary journey. And 10 years on, he finds himself in jail again. But as he's in jail, we're going to see this more in chapter 4. The Philippian church send him help. They send a man called Epaphroditus who we'll meet in a few weeks time. And Epaphroditus travels to to where Paul is in jail. And this was a a risky journey. And he brings him money from uh, from Philippi. He brings him food. He brings him um, different things to kind of help him and encourage him. And there seems to be this, this pipeline of love from Philippi to Paul. They love him. And don't you get a sense of the love that Paul has for them in those verses? Like he loves them back, like big time, he loves them. They love one another deeply. What I want us to see, and as we read even just the word love in there, this is not a normal type of love. The love that is demonstrated here between Paul and the Philippians and the Philippians and Paul is rooted in that word in verse five, partnership. It's a Greek word, koinonia. And it's a word that's going to be really important for us as we um, uh, travel through this book. Koinonia, partnership. When we think of partnership, we might think of different things, but the, the meaning here is, is maybe like a marriage partnership or a business partnership. Say uh, Andy and I went into partnership with each other on a joint venture to, to do something together. We'd enter into a koinonia together. Or Elizabeth and I in our marriage, there's a, there's a partnership there, a near between us. And, and the real root of that type of partnership is a deeply sacrificial relationship where we are pursuing a shared aim. So the business that Andy and I start up together, we're pursuing a, a joint ambition, a, the same aim, and we're going to have to make sacrifices in order to do it. The goal for Elizabeth and I in our marriage is to grow in our love for each other, to, to support our children, and, and that requires sacrifice. 
like the moment that Johnny gets married, God willing, in a few weeks' time, he can't carry on living the single life that he leads now. He can't. That marriage will, will just be a nightmare if it doesn't. The same for Lottie. There is change. You sacrifice. You give things up. It costs. It hurts at times. But folks, it is worth it. Like, don't not get married because there's going to be sacrifice. You get married because you know it's going to be worth it. We enter into a business. There is no business, by the way. It's just hypothetical. But if we were going to do it, and he's getting really excited. If we were going to do it, we would do it because it's worth it. Koinonia, a deeply sacrificial partnership, a relationship where we're, where we're, where we're going to come in together and we're going to lay things down, but because there is something we are working towards which is worth it. And Paul says Christians come into koinonia together. We come into a deeply sacrificial relationship with one another, which will cost us, which may hurt us, which may need us to lay our preferences and our our wants and our likes down. But Paul says it is worth it. It is worth it. This is not just a religious gathering that Paul is talking about. He's talking about a fellowship of friends who are working together on a shared ambition, which is the mission of God. So here's the wrong way to think about what we are doing here. It's to just think about it as a group of friends coming together. Like some of my best friends are in this room and I love you, but that is not all that we are. We are friends on a mission together, like the elves, like the hobbits, like Paul and the Philippians here. We are journeying somewhere. We are sharing the same ambition for the glory of God to go into the homes and streets of the city and to transform the lives of men and women and boys and girls. That is why we gather as friends together to glorify God, to share in the mission. We are not just acquaintances. We have deeply authentic, loving relationships that are heading somewhere. And just listen to the affection that Paul shares. He says that he thanks God for these people. He says that they make his prayers joyful. He says, I hold you in my heart. He says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Like that is a deep kind of love that Paul is describing. How does that come about? C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, says this. He says, friendships are discovered when we say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. You as well? I, th- I thought I was the only one. Like, if you ever had that experience, maybe when you're away from home, on holiday somewhere in a different country or a different part of, the, of the, the world, and you find someone who's maybe from the same town as you, or you find someone who supports the same football team as you, which never happens to me ever, because I'm one of the only two people who support my football team. But, but that feeling when you're away from home and you meet someone who's from Liverpool or from Birkenhead or wherever, and you're like, ah! We, we have some sort of connection here. You too, like you grew up there. Do you know, like you get this all the time, right? Like everyone knows everyone in Northern Ireland. So you're always making connections wherever you go. But it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Like making those connections and saying, I thought I was the only one. Deep friendships are based on commonality. And I want us to tell us this morning, folks, the you too moment, the Christian share goes so much deeper than just saying, oh, you too, you're from Liverpool. Oh, you're from Northern Ireland? Oh, you support Trammy Rovers? Oh, what a wonderful thing. No, the you too that Christian people sharing goes far deeper than that. 
We have the same saviour. We have the same spirit. We are heading towards the same glory. We have the same mission. We've, we've gone through the same journey of being transformed from dead people into people who are spiritually, spiritually alive. The you two that we share is so much deeper. Folks, when we gather together, we are not just Christians who meet together. We are friends who share in a deep life experience and a shared mission. I want to encourage us, Liberty Church, to see each other that way. This is not just merely a a collection of like-minded people. This is a fellowship of friends, folks. And those kind of relationships... Those kind of deep relationships that Paul talks about here. Those kind of you two relationships that we we experience with one another. They are countercultural in a lot of ways. Because there are so many barriers within our culture that will stop us enjoying those types of friendships. Let me just give us four. In the world that we live in, there is something called sensationalism. Where we try and hype up what we think life should be like. And maybe you might be kind of tempted towards that when you think of the church and you look at Christians and you think that their life just seems a little bit boring. Like it's just not sensational enough for me. There's no excitement around. And that will push you towards maybe not engaging with with Christians because, because you think that they should be something more exciting than what they are. I want to tell you, actually, the Christian life is the most exciting life you can live. There's also something called mysticism that might prevent you from engaging in those kind of relationships. Thinking that the, the Christian life is, is just about a relationship between me and God. It's this, this vertical relationship. It's all about me and Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy, like that kind of thing. I just need Jesus. You don't. Jesus tells you you don't just need Jesus. You need this fellowship of friends. This idealism. The wish dream. C.S. Lewis calls calls it the wish dream this kind of perfect picture of the the perfect christian and everyone needs to conform to that image and and they they're just like this and the reality is we're not like that and everyone is different you have this perfect picture perfect picture of what church should be like and it never lives up to your standards it's idealism and finally maybe the most damaging and prolific in our culture individualism and that would be the dominant obstacle that would stop you engaging in this, this fellowship of friends. This cultural drive that you can do it on your own. You just need to be the best version of yourself. You don't need them. You are gods in this world. And everyone else just serves you. The individual is put on a plinth of, of, of idolatry. And the world would say, you don't need a fellowship of friends. Just do what you think's best. Each of those things will prevent you from engaging in this beautiful thing that is the fellowship of friends of God's people. I want to tell us this morning the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ coming and living amongst us, dying for us, resurrecting, ascending to be with the Father. That gospel draws us into authentic relationship, into friendship, into friends who not only say that we love one another, but show that we love one another. Paul doesn't just know the love of the Philippians. He's experienced it. That's what he means in verse 7 when he says that they share grace together. So he's not just talking about them sharing in in salvation. So grace, uh, salvation is a gift of grace from God. It is a free gift and they share in that. But specifically he's talking here about the nature of that grace. 
how that grace has worked out in their lives. And he describes how they do that. They come and help him. They, they come to his defense. They help him with the confirmation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. So Paul's affection, his love for the Philippians flows out of his experience of this koinonia with them. Paul's suffering, he says, presented an opportunity for the Philippians to demonstrate that. They share with him. They come to his aid. They don't just say that they love him. They actually love him. They go to him. They show him. They extend that love towards him. And so he says, I yearn with the same affection of Christ Jesus towards you. And it's right that I do. Paul loves them deeply. He yearns with the same affection of Jesus. He doesn't just like them. He loves them in the same way that Christ loves them. That's powerful. Let me just remind you what that is. He's saying that he loves them with the same love that Christ Jesus has. And and in Paul's story, you see just what a powerful picture that love is. So Paul wasn't always a missionary. Like he started out, his, his first job was as a terrorist, literally. He was responsible for, for uh, facilitating and helping the murder of the first missionaries. Like he had a dark past. He was God's enemy before he was saved. He describes himself as the worst of sinners. And yet he says, even though he was an enemy of God, he wanted to put Christians to death. He says, God sent his son and died for me. God sent his son and died for me and gave me a new life. The worst of sinners, God's greatest enemy, he died for me. Like that is love. He describes it in Romans chapter 8 like this. Another letter, he says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Then listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I'm sure this is how powerful the love of Christ is towards the Apostle Paul. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows the power of the love of God. He has been transformed by the power of the love of God. And he is saying there is nothing in this universe that is stronger than the love of God. Nothing, not even death can separate me from the power of the love of God. And Philippian church, I love you with that same love. And by extension, he would say to us this morning, Liberty Church, love like that. Love with that power. Have that amount of affection for your brothers and sisters in this church. Do we? Do we love one another like that? We can, folks. Because we are united to the same Christ that Paul is united to, we can love in that way. And we should. Paul gives us two ways that we can do that. 
two ways that we can love one another, two ways that we can abound in our love towards one another. And the first is this, to pray. To pray for one another. Paul loves people. So he prays for them. That's what you do with people that you love. You pray for them. Verse 3 to 4, he, he talks about a joyful prayer and intercession. He says he, he prays for them all. I, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you always in every prayer of mine for you all. He prays for all of them. And we're going to see in chapter 4, like not everyone in the church was, was uh, uh, lovable. Like there was conflict within the church. Paul says, I pray for every single one of you. I give thanks for every single one of you. In my remembrance, I am thankful when I think of you. Now just think of what Paul's memories are of the Philippians. Paul got beaten up. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 16. He was beaten up, like bad style. Like they took uh, um, uh, rods and beat him. They put him into stocks. He was thrown into jail. He was falsely accused. Like Paul's experience of being with the Philippians, there's some great memories there of Lydia being saved and the slave girl and the, and the jailer, but there's some really painful experience there as well. But Paul still says, when I remember you, more than anything, I'm thankful. I'm joyful. Think about the sea and think about the world that we live in now. Like it is bleak, isn't it? This pandemic that we're in at the moment, it is a bleak existence for a lot of us. I encourage us to zoom out and see the bigger picture of what is going on. See the grace of God. See the mercy of God. See the love of God. See your salvation and allow that to fill you with joy and thankfulness. Don't let the struggle that we are in at the moment, which is real, don't let that rob you of being a thankful person. Don't let your circumstance rob you of being a joyful person. Zoom out and see the evidences of grace and be thankful. And don't wait for better circumstances either. Be thankful where you are now. Like think about Paul as he writes this letter. Where is he? In jail. Like he's in chains. Like you can't get a a lower life experience than being in jail, especially a Roman jail. And yet he is thankful. He is joyful in that moment. So can I tell us this morning, don't, don't wait until you've got that wife or that husband or the money or the job or the house to be thankful. You can have all of those things and still be a person without joy. Be thankful and be joyful now where you are as you look at the big picture of what God is doing and who he is. Paul sees the big picture and he is thankful for the people that God has given him and he prays for. You know, if you read through Paul's letters and look at what he prays for, He hardly ever prays for things. You know what he prays for? People. Like almost all his prayers are for people. You hardly ever see Paul praying for, for God to give him X, Y, and Z. He just prays for people. Could the same be said about our prayers? Could that be the mark of our prayers that we pray more than anything for people? And it shouldn't be a condition of how people act towards you before we pray for them. Like, that isn't how Paul prays. You think there's some conflict in Philippians. Read the book of Corinthians. Like there is all sorts going on in the church in Corinth. And yet Paul prays for them. He is thankful for them. If you are a critical person, folks, you will not be a thankful person. So can I give us a tip when we're praying? 
Don't look for perfection before showing thankfulness for people. Look for evidences of God's grace. That is a sure sign of us growing in our love when we are growing in being more thankful people and praying for others with a genuine joy. So one way we can do this is to pray and the next way that we see and just the way that he closes this out is for us to inform our love. Pray for one another and love one another. Let your love be informed. Verse 9, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is a little bit like a verse that he writes in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying, allow your mind just to to grow in its understanding of the world around you. Allow your mind to be transformed by God so that you can make good choices, so that you can discern what is a good thing to do, what is acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying, grow in love, abound in love, but grow in love that is informed. See, there's so much affection that pours out from Paul here, but, but this isn't like a, a mushy kind of, 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 of love that he's talking about. The love that he's talking about here is, is an agape love. That's the Greek word, agape. There's different ways that you can um, translate love in the New Testament here. Agape love is a love that has an action associated with it. It's a love that moves. It's a love that acts. It's the same love that God shows towards his people in sending his son. And look at all of the the cognitive words that Paul uses, knowledge, discernment, that you may approve. He's talking about loving in a way that is informed. And when he talks about knowledge here, he's specifically talking about knowledge of God. He's saying, church, be biblically informed and deeply loving. Don't just be kind of loving people. Allow your love to be biblically informed. The foundation of genuine love is knowledge of God. And if we want to love this fellowship of friends well, folks, we need to know Jesus more. We need to know Jesus in his word more. And it isn't that we just fill our heads with knowledge. Paul says knowledge leads to discernment. What's the difference? Well, think about this. Knowledge asks what is right. Discernment asks what is best. The question for us is not should we love, it's not who we should love, but what is the best way for me to love that person? And that will look different. The way that I love Andy will be different to the way I love Johnny or Georgina or Helen. Like it will look different because they are different people. Paul is saying be people who are knowledgeable, who know who God is, and then be people who are discerning who seek to understand how we can love. And the more we do that, the more we abound in our love, the more we grow in our love, the more we seek to understand how we can love and specifically love one another, the more we will grow into the likeness of Jesus. Paul says you will will be pure and blameless. None of us are pure and blameless. There is only one who is pure and blameless, and that is Jesus. But Paul is saying, as you grow in this love, you will become like that. You will become like Jesus. So folks, I want to encourage us. We are good at prayer. We are good at studying our Bibles. But how much of our prayer and how much of our study is aimed at loving one another? You think about the time that you spend studying your Bible. Are you more concerned about personal growth? 
Or are you concerned about how your time studying God's word is going to help you to love this body more? Think about the time that you pray. Are you praying more for what you need or are you praying for the needs of this fellowship of friends? As we look out into 2021, we might look and think, well, they're just not the right conditions for me to grow and to abound in love. There's too many constraints around me. I can't, I can't even be with someone and, and touch them and hold their hand. And I, I, it's just not the right time for me to do that. Our ability to love and to abound in love is not too dissimilar to the circumstance the Apostle Paul found himself. He was in chains. Never mind being socially isolated. He couldn't get anywhere near the Philippians. And yet his love for them is so big. So what will it look like for us to love one another, for our love to abound for each other more and more? Well, I think it looks like prayerful thankfulness. So can I encourage us, Liberty Church, this week? Why don't we go away? And why don't we task ourselves with praying for each other by name? Praying for each person who calls this place home praying for them each by name and asking God for discernment. Like literally pray this. God, how can I love that person? How can I grow in my love for that person and be specific? Like don't just arrive at a point where you think, yeah, I just need to tell that person I love them. No, that's, that's not enough. It's not enough just to say I love you. Ask God for discernment. What action do I need to make? This is agape love. This is love that moves towards love that acts. Ask God as you pray for each person individually, God, how do you want me to move towards them and love them specifically? It might be a text. It might be a letter. It might be a gift. I don't know. Ask God what it is. And it could look different for each person. Can I encourage us families? Pray those type of prayers with our kids around. Because what we pray for shows those around us what we value most. And if all our children hear us as giving thanks for food or giving, giving thanks to God for, for our, our job or our home or asking God for these different things, they are the things that our kids will think that we value more than anything else. And the reality is we value this fellowship of friends more than anything else. And so pray these prayers in earshot of our children. When we study this week, folks, as you spend time in God's word, can I encourage you to ask God to, to show you how does this passage help me to love you more, but also how does it help me to love this body more? How can I love this fellowship of friends more to the glory of God? And it will not be easy. It will need our minds to be transformed. Growth needs energy, folks. We can't just do this sitting down and, and just not engaging. It's going to require energy from us. But let me leave us with two encouragements. Our growth is sustained by Jesus. He is the thread through these verses. We do not grow alone. He is the vine. We are the branches. And he will sustain us. He will grow us. And when we kind of grow slowly or don't grow, we are fixed to him who is the source of all grace. Our growth is sustained by Jesus. And then here a final encouragement. In verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. Who's, who is Paul's confidence in that the church will grow? It's not in them. 
It's in Jesus. His confidence is in God. God always finishes what he starts. And he will never give up. So if we're struggling with this, if we're finding this is just a bit exhausting, if we, we kind of disengage a little bit, keep going. I've got confidence that God will finish the great work that he has started within you. You are not the finished article. Keep growing. Keep growing in your love. Keep abounding in your love to the glory of God. Amen.